We're going to be talking about forgiveness today, and I'd like you to turn to the text that's found in Luke chapter 17 in our series of Jesus Lifestyle. Um, I have a suggestion, and my suggestion is that from now on, the time change happened on Sunday night, and they give us Monday off. What do you think of that? All right. I'm not sure we can do anything about it, but uh, that would be nice, wouldn't it? So you're the most rested of all the services today, and I expect you to be right on top of things, all right? Jesus, in the beginning of Luke chapter 17, tells us that we can expect in life that people are going to cause us to stumble sometimes if we're not careful. That is, cause us to stumble by offending us, either in their words or in their actions. And that we need to be careful how we respond back, that we don't fight back, that we don't try to trip them up. And so he issues a warning in verse 3. He says, so watch yourselves. Watch yourselves when your spouse or your kids or your parents or your friends or your, your fellow students or your fellow Christian or an unbeliever does or says something to you that potentially could cause you to want to react in an equally offensive, negative, nasty way. He says, watch yourselves. And then in verse 3, he says this. If your brother or sister, that is another believer especially, sins against you, he says, rebuke them. Now let's stop there for a moment. Because that word rebuke, and, you know, if you're the one that's been offended, that's kind of like a fun word for you. It's like saying sickum, right, to a, to a guard dog. It's like, ooh, I get to go and put my finger in your chest because Jesus said, I can get in your face. I can rebuke you for what you've done to me. Well, that's not exactly what rebuke means. We'll come back to that in a minute. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, what? Well, you didn't sound too happy about that. And if they repent, what? Forgive them. But do we always want to forgive them? No. Next verse. Let's finish it together. Out loud. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day. And seven times come back to you saying, I repent. You must forgive them. You must forgive them. That is, if they chronically, you know, do things that are wrong and sincerely come back and say they're sorry, you got to forgive them. Now, this is not talking about living in an abusive relationship. You know, if you have somebody who's beating on you and doing terrible things, do you get out of that. Get out of that. Get safe. But generally speaking, in most instances, you know, when... When somebody says they're sorry, okay, we've got to be willing to forgive them. And even if it's a terrible situation that we need to get out of, we're going to learn that there's a danger if we don't get to that place where we can offer forgiveness. And here's the danger. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Would you read the rest out loud with me? See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And the emphasis there is on bitterness. That's why it's important for us 
to always reconcile as soon as possible. Because the longer you hold back giving forgiveness, the longer you hold back going to make things right, whether you're the offender or the offendee, the greater potential for the root of bitterness begin to spring up in your life. It's kind of like when a surgeon goes in to take cancer out of a patient. She goes in to remove all of the cancer if possible because she knows if she leaves even a little bit of the tumor left in there, it will grow. In fact, it will not only grow, it will metastasize. And that's very, very serious. If I don't deal with my, my feelings, if I don't give forgiveness, if I don't work toward reconciliation right away, what will happen is I'll begin to develop, or though it will metastasize in my body, anger, hatred, vengeance, self-pity, withdrawal, gossip, critical spirit, cynicism, and that's just a few of the things that can happen. That all sounds pretty ugly, doesn't it? And that's not how we ought to live. It's, it's toxic to us and it's toxic to our relationships when we live that way. And over the years, I've known people in, in their marriages and their families and their relationships with others who carry around that toxicity of an unforgiving, bitter spirit. And it makes them ugly. Do you know what I mean? makes them emotionally difficult to be around with because it just festers in their life. And that's not how God wants us to live. So the question becomes, how do I, how do I live, in a sense, perpetually forgiving? How do I live with a reconciling kind of spirit? How do I live and offer forgiveness? And in order to understand that, we have to understand God's relationship to us. Because the truth is, none of us deserves to be forgiven by God. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20 says, there is no one on earth who is righteous. Did you know that? There's no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. All of us sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 18 that we have inherited our first father's sin nature, Adam. And we are conceived, David says, in sin. We are born out of the womb rebellious. And God said to Adam and Eve, he said, if you sin against me, if you disobey me, the consequences is death. Not just physical death. I mean, this is just a shell that the real me wears. We are spiritual in form. God's given us a body to wear. So it's not just physical death, it's spiritual death. And spiritual death is not that you cease to exist. Spiritual death is that you spend the eternity in an environment known as hell. And we love to talk about heaven. Hell is also reality in the scriptures. So there's not a thing that any of us can do to earn back God's grace and God's favor. But that's what's so amazing about God is his love triumphs his judgment. And so God made a way for us to be reconciled back in relationship to him. In the Old Testament, the way that God did this is that God gave them the law to keep, which they couldn't keep, but then he gave them a sacrificial system. He said, rather than you dying for your own sin because you can't, you can take an animal like a lamb and that lamb can die in your place. And I will then withhold my judgment. The stay of execution will be held. And I won't exercise it until 
a perfect lamb comes along until a perfect sacrifice is made once and for all to take away the penalty. And that's when Jesus came. John 1.29, John the Baptist saw Jesus and he told those who were with him, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And then in chapter 2, verse 24, he stated, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins in Christ, through Christ, and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, spiritually healed. When it says he bore our sins, that word to bear in the, in the Greek and the Hebrew means to literally lift up something that's heavy and carry it. So picture this. Jesus comes and he lifts up our sin, our guilt, our, our deserved execution, so to speak. And he carries it onto the cross and takes it on himself. And God accepts what he does for us. And when I put my faith in his son, I am forgiven. Now that is why we talk and sing about amazing grace. He had nothing to do with it. He did it all for you and for me. And that truly is amazing. And if you believe it, it's your source of joy in life, isn't it? If you believe it, it's why you're willing to learn to forgive like Jesus. Which then brings us to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, where Paul says, be kind and compassionate to one another. Now listen to this. Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. So you hear what? Do you hear what Paul's saying? I'm responsible now as a follower of Jesus in this Jesus lifestyle I'm living. I'm responsible to forgive you the way that God has forgiven me. And the question becomes, what does that mean? What does that look like? Let me give you a couple of thoughts around that. First of all, it means I need to identify with the person who offends me. You know, Jesus identified with us. I mean, he went to great lengths to identify with us. He took on a human body. He came and he suffered like us and with us. And then he absorbed our guilt, our condemnation, and our death on himself for us. So what does it mean for me to identify with a person who offends me? Well, it means, first of all, that you recognize that you're just as much as a sinner as that person. And sometimes we forget that when people say things or do things to hurt us. I don't know if it's ever happened to you. It's happened to me. I said it to myself. I may have even said it out loud when someone's hurt me or said something nasty to me. I've said things like, I would never say that. Anybody else ever done that? And I would never do that. And the truth is, there are some things that people say and do that you might never say to anybody. You would never do to anybody. But there still are things you say that are wrong and hurtful. And there are things that you do that are wrong and that are hurtful. That's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Galatians 6, 1. When you go to confront, now we're back to that rebuke, right? 
Since when you go to confront, don't go with your finger sticking out to put it in somebody's chest or in their eyes. He says, go humbly, go carefully. Look in the mirror first. Because you could just as easily mess up. Now when somebody comes to you with that kind of humility, with that sense of, look, I'm not better than you. I have my issues, but here's what's happened. Let's reconcile. It is so much easier to do it. Then when they come storming in and they got, you know, they're angry and they yell at you and they tell you how mad they are at you and they're pointing their finger at your chest. Whoa, whoa, what do you want to do at that point? I don't want to say I'm sorry. I want to, I, at that point, I'm ready, you know, to, to press in a little harder myself. So I got to be willing to at least identify with that offender in that way. Now, here comes the challenge in the Jesus lifestyle. I also have to be willing to carry the debt of pain myself. I said, what do you mean by that? Well, when somebody hurts you, what do you want to do? You want to hurt them back, right? And if, if you don't personally want to hurt them back, you hope somebody else will. And when it happens, you kind of feel good. I mean, if I've been abused by you, you ought to be abused. You ought to know what that feels like. If I've been forgotten by you, I hope you feel forgotten. If you cause me trouble at work, I hope, I hope you get in trouble at work. If you cause me to be gossiped about unfairly or gossiped about, period, I hope you're gossiped about. There's something in us that wants to see other people experience pain if we experience pain. And maybe you know of a situation, or maybe you've had it happen in your life where somebody that really ticked you off, said, did something really wrong to you, really, really got in trouble, really got it bad, and then all of a sudden you felt better because you felt like justice was served. That's our human nature. Can you imagine if God treated us the same way? We wouldn't be here right now. And Paul says in Ephesians 4, 32, I'm supposed to forgive you the way that God forgave me. Which means when I want to visit vengeance, hatred, anger, whatever it is on you, I gotta be willing to say, nope, not gonna do it. I'm just gonna, I'm going to just refuse to act on how I feel and treat you the way God has treated me. You say, Pastor, are you talking about the issue of forgiving and forgetting? No. And let me make something really clear about forgiving and forgetting. It doesn't work. It's not true. Sounds really good. Forgive and forget. But it doesn't work. I'll give you a, I'll give you a reason why. I'll have a little experiment here. You ready? So turn your imagination on if you have turned it off. And I want you to imagine in your mind, a pink elephant. A pink elephant. How many of you can see it in your mind now? Okay, all right, a pink elephant. Now listen carefully to me. Ready? I want you to forget about the pink elephant. I'm asking you right now to please forget about the pink elephant. Forget about the pink elephant. You say, if you stop reminding me, I might be able to. And that's the problem. Every time I say it, you think about it. And the more you try to forget something, the bigger it oftentimes becomes. 
So what I have to do is choose when I think of it not to act on it. Now here's the question. Does God forgive and does God forget? Is that how God looks at us? Is that how God treats us? Well, listen to Isaiah chapter 43. God speaking, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Now let's hold the verse up on the screen for a moment, okay? It sounds like God forgives and forgets, but technically speaking, God cannot forget because God is all-knowing. If you look at that verse carefully, what that teaches us is that God chooses not to remember our sin against us. One of my favorite verses found in Isaiah chapter 49 goes like this. It's one of my favorite verses in Isaiah. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, though it's humanly possible that a, that a mother totally forgets, and I know this has happened, I know of some instances where that's taken place. Mother just is in total denial of the infant, walks away. God says, not me. He says, I will not forget you. Now that's one thing. God never forgets. It's his love for you. So in essence, what we hear God saying is, I choose not to remember your wrongs. I choose to remember my mercy instead. What is mercy? So in the Hebrew, there are two words that are very similar to each other. One word is rahem, R-E-H-E-M, rahem. It means womb. It means the womb of a woman, a woman's womb. The other is rachamim, rachamim. It means mercy. And both words, rahem and rachamim, come from the same root word. So they both are expressing something very similar. Evishai Margalit, who is a professor of ethics at the Hebrew University, wrote a book called The Ethics of Memory. Bought the book. Not an easy book to read. But he says something remarkable in the book. He says, you have to keep both words, rahim, the womb, and rahamim, mercy, in, in line with each other to appreciate what mercy truly is. Because he says, what mercy is, is when I go after somebody who is afar off or far away, and I bring them back to the source, the womb. Mercy is God bringing us back to the womb and seeing us and treating us as though we were not conceived in sin, as though we have been perfect from the moment of conception to this very moment today. Some might call that being born again. And that's how God sees you in Christ. That's what it means, God's mercy. Which then means to be a person who forgives, my attitude and my actions towards you are always for you, not against you. Now understand, everything we're talking about here is counterculture, it is counterhuman nature. This takes the grace of God. Because normally when somebody does something to you, you are against them. You are not for them. 
But God was for us. Christ was for us. And the only way reconciliation can take place is somebody has to be for wholeness. And that's our responsibility. I'm for you. I want to see this healed. I want to see reconciliation take place. I want you to be forgiven. I want to forgive you. I want to be forgiven. In that sense, let me ask you another question. It's kind of like the chicken and egg question. Which comes first, repentance or forgiveness? I used to think it was repentance, and then I discovered I was wrong. Forgiveness precedes repentance. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Forgiveness precedes repentance. Forgiveness, in that sense, truly is a gift given to us. Here's my gift. Repentance is the action, in essence, of saying, I receive the gift. I let go of whatever it is in my past. I let go of whatever I've done, whatever I've trusted in, and I turn to you, God, and by faith, I receive what you have for me. I repent, I say sorry to my past, whatever I've said, whatever I've done, and I receive what you have for me. Now when you give a gift, people have, they have an option. They can receive your gift with gratitude and thanksgiving, or they can take your gift and throw it in the garbage. Or they can look at your gift and say, I don't want it, keep it to yourself. At that moment, at that point, you can't force your gift on them. But you also don't have to walk away and say, see, I told you how nasty they are. Boy, my anger is even tenfold worse than it was. I made this effort, look how they treated it. You can't let that happen to you. At that moment, you, you've done everything you can do. And rather than getting angry about it, you just leave it with God. And God says, vengeance is mine. You focus on being good. You focus on being merciful. You focus on being kind. I am the judge. I, I alone am perfect. I alone have the right to judge my creation. At the end of the days, I'll settle all the counts. You don't need to carry that weight around. Aren't you glad? Not to carry that weight around. And I know some of you have had people do terrible, terrible, terrible things to you. Listen. You need to ask God to give you the grace to at least open the door and create a pathway for that person to experience forgiveness. It may take a while to get there. It doesn't mean you have to actually physically be there. Maybe it's a dangerous situation, but at least in your heart, you've got to kind of, you got to let go of that baggage because it's killing you. It's ruining you. It's hurting you. It's toxic in your life and toxic to everybody else in your life. You got to let it go. And the way you let it go is you give up the judgment. You leave it to God. But be careful. Be careful you don't then secretly pray, God, I hope you get them good. <laughs> pray for their repentance. Because listen carefully. You go back and read verse 2 of Luke 17. The consequences of not repenting is grave. It's grave. So the question becomes, how do you handle that? How do you live like that? When the disciples heard this from Jesus, their response was, please give us more faith. <laughs> we look at it, verse 5. 
Apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. How in the world are we going to live like this? And the apostles were not all tame guys. I mean, James and John were called the sons of thunder for a reason. They had tempers. Once when Jesus wanted to go to the Samaritan village, and the Samaritan village refused to have Jesus come in. James and John, remember John, who's known later on as a beloved disciple, they suggested to Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? I think that's called vengeance. And Jesus rebuked them. They're like, God, how do we live this way? And Jesus tells them a little story. He says, first of all, it takes, it takes you know, you don't need greater faith. It just takes a small little bit of, uh, of faith, like a mustard seed, really small little seed. So with, you know, mustard seed-sized faith, you can tell that tree to uproot itself and go be planted in the seed. Listen, guys, I just need you to believe what I've said, and I need you to do what I've said. Then he tells them this parable in verse 7. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. In essence, what Jesus is saying, it's just like a servant when they come in from their hard day of work. Then make sure that the master is taken care of before they take care of themselves. When they just do their duty, in essence what Jesus is saying is as a believer, it is your duty to forgive. You shouldn't expect some great reward for it. It's supposed to be your lifestyle. But listen, it's not duty for duty's sake. It's duty that comes out of our experience with God. So then he goes on, he talks about 10 lepers that Jesus meets on the way to Jerusalem. True story. Nine are Jews, one is a Samaritan. Normally Jews and Samaritans hate each other, but these guys all have the same condition. They're lepers, they're outcasts. They're unclean. And so they have kind of camaraderie. And they see Jesus and from a distance they call out, heal us. And Jesus says, go show yourself to the priests. And as they go, and they'd be going to Jerusalem, because that's where the priests would be at the temple, as they go, they're healed. Love to see that, wouldn't you? Nine keep going, and one, the Samaritan, stops the journey with the nine. Why? Well, we could say, well, of course he doesn't go to Jerusalem, because he goes there, he's going to risk his life as a Samaritan. We could say, no, he's going to go to Mount Gerizim. That's where the Samaritans believe was the temple and the mountain of God, God's holy mountain. He's not going to go see a Jewish priest. He's going to go see a Samaritan priest. But he doesn't even do that. Look what he does. Come back to verse 15, Luke 17. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. Can you imagine the scene? Out in the middle, you know, maybe the wilderness. This guy just, the top of his lungs, shouting praises to God. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet, reckless abandon, boom, right there in front of Jesus, face in the dirt, and thanked him, and thanked him profusely. He was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, we're not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then Jesus said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Why does this guy come back to Jesus? 
I was thinking about that and I was reminded of another Samaritan story in John chapter 4. This time Jesus meets a woman who's a Samaritan who is a known sinner. She's had all kinds of affairs. She's out at the well by herself because none of the other women are going to hang out with her because she's probably had affairs with her husbands. And Jesus and her encounter and they talk about having a drink of water and Jesus begins to kind of poke around in her life and kind of unearth what's going on. And all of a sudden she changes the subject by talking religious, religion and politics. And she says, you know, you Jews say Jerusalem's the right place to worship. We Samaritans say Mount Gerizim is the right place to worship. And in John chapter 4, verse 21, Jesus says, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. I'm so proud of this Samaritan former leper because he gets who Jesus is. I'm not going to go to a priest in Jerusalem. I'm not going to go to a priest on Mount Gerizim. God's high priest is right here. I don't need that temple. I don't need that temple. I'm going to worship him in spirit and in truth. And he was so filled with gratitude. Do you know why we forgive? We forgive out of gratitude. Because God has forgiven us. And the gratitude we have is bigger than the pain we feel, than the vengeance and the hatred and the anger that may be lurking in our hearts. I want to read to you a very brief little story, true story. It comes out of Ernest Gordon's book, Miracle on the River Kwai. He says, the Scottish soldiers forced by their Japanese captors to labor on a jungle railroad had degenerated to barbarous behavior. But one afternoon, something happened. A shovel was missing. The officer in charge became enraged he demanded that the missing shovel be produced or else. When nobody in the squadron budged, the officer got his gun and threatened to kill them all on the spot. It was obvious the officer meant what he said. And finally, one man stepped forward. The officer put away his gun, picked up a shovel, and beat the man to death. When it was over, the survivors picked up the bloody corpse and carried it with them to the second tool check. This time... No shovel was missing. Indeed, there had been a miscount at the first checkpoint. The word spread like wildfire through the whole company. An innocent man had been willing to die to save others. The incident had a profound effect. The men began to treat each other like brothers. When the victorious allies swept in, the survivors, human skeletons, lined up in front of their captors. And instead of attacking their captors, insisted, no more hatred, no more killing. Now what we need is forgiveness. You know, sacrificial love has a transforming power. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you today. We are 
unable to adequately through word or music or art form express to you our gratitude for what you have done for us through Jesus Christ. In fact, Lord, we would confess that we cannot even plummet the depths of what that means for us. And we ask you to forgive us for living our everyday lives so often without gratitude and appreciation for all you've done for us. We humble ourselves before you this day. We receive our forgiveness with thanksgiving. And Father, we want to forgive like Jesus. So Lord, I ask that you would speak to all our hearts, mine included. Reveal to us, oh God, the face, the name of someone we need to reconcile with. Someone we need to go to and ask forgiveness from or someone, Lord, that we need to go to and offer forgiveness to. We ask you, Lord, to show us where we have allowed bitterness to metastasize in our life. Where there's deep-seated anger, hatred, vengeance, gossip, cynicism, self-pity. We carry around, Lord, this toxin and it destroys us from the inside out. Father, you, you forgave us when we didn't deserve it. And you've laid a pathway out for us to be reconciled. Father, that's all you ask us to do. It's offer the same. And what people do or don't do with it, Lord, we leave in your hands. As we come, Father, to the sacred table of Holy Communion today, I pray that you would do two things. Deepen within the depths of our being, oh God, gratitude for you. And what you've done for us. Spark in us the earnest desire, oh God, to extend the forgiveness of God's grace to others. And free us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.